Well, thank you. I love Johnny Cash. Are we not done? Are we done? Oh, you're, you're done. Okay, I was like, did I cut you off? That would have been a spectacular failure. <clears throat> I love Johnny Cash, so thank you for playing Johnny Cash. That is a great song, right? I walk the line, I find myself alone at the end of each night. Too bad it wasn't true of Johnny Cash. Uh, Johnny Cash never lived up to that song. Uh, Johnny Cash had a lot of problems. He sinned in very public ways, very open ways. Uh, whether or not he uh, let people know about it or people just found out about it, we all know that Johnny Cash had his struggles. But one thing I love about Johnny Cash is he loved the Lord. Uh, now, I can't be certain. I'm not his judge. So I can't be certain about how sincere that was. But there's enough evidence to suggest that, you know, we'll see him one day. And so that makes Johnny Cash a spectacular failure. He is, he is a man like us who is riddled with his own problems. He had his own struggles. He had his own deep, deep struggle with sin. And yet God's grace was sufficient for him. And if God's grace is sufficient for him and, and all these other men that we're talking about, then God's grace is sufficient for us. Uh, as we continue on through the conference, what, what we're going to be looking at is we started in the patriarchs, we took a look at the judges, we're going to look at the kings now, but I just want to refresh our memory of this big picture. One thing that Steve said that was so important for us, if you want to understand God, if you want to get to know him, if you want to understand the gospel, then you can't zone in on a parable or two, you can't look at just this paragraph here or that story over there. You need to step back enough that you can see the whole thing and see what God has been doing from beginning to end. Now, along that line, what I want to do uh, by way of introduction for this is to just remind us all of the times in the, in the history presented to us in the Bible where God could have and God should have if, if we're operating just on justice and not on grace, when God could have and should have wiped us out. It should have just destroyed us. It should have been the end of the human race. It should have been God just washing his hands or shaking his hands of us and saying, look, that was a mistake. So we, we know that Genesis 3 is one of those examples. After God had created Adam, he sinned. And what did God say when he gave that one rule to Adam in the garden? You may eat of any tree in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat of it. And then what did God say? For on the day you do it, you shall surely die. Now, I, we, we try to use some interpretive gymnastics to get out of this problem, like God off the hook, like God didn't keep his word because Adam ate it and he didn't die. And we say, well, he died spiritually. You know, relationally, he was cut off from, from God and from his wife and from everyone else after that. And eventually he did die. And I think those are both true. But the fact remains, on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's justice. Justice would be, I ate the fruit, I, I die. I die right then and there. Just to keep Adam and Eve alive long enough to have a son, and then another son, and then another son and some daughters, is the grace of God. We should never have made it to Genesis 4. The Bible could have and should have been three chapters long and there would have been nobody alive to read it. So that's the first time that we, we see that happening. Uh, and then you get to Noah. God looked down and he said, I, I regret that I have made man because I see the inclination of their heart. I see the inclination of their, their thoughts. I'm going to wipe them out. That's justice. Delayed justice, but justice. And then in, in, in the next verse it says, and Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's unexpected. That's undeserved. That's God's grace. And why, why did Noah find favor in the eyes of the Lord? Because had he not, then there is no humanity. And then the Bible is six chapters long and nobody's allowed to even read that. Then we get to um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the patriarchs. Abraham, as I said in, in the first message, he was given a list of unconditional promises that were hinged entirely, they're contingent entirely on God's character, on God's grace, and not on, on Abraham's character and his merit. So that's grace. Then we see all this, the, the sin and abuse of his family, and they go in and they're enslaved in Egypt, and we often think, oh, poor 
poor Israel, the poor Hebrews, Abraham's family in Egypt, like in slavery, and we think that that's such a, a social injustice. And yet, what actually that is, is God keeping them alive and forming them into a nation. And in fact, what did God do graciously? He sent Joseph on ahead of the rest of them in order to save Egypt and Canaan and the whole surrounding area so they wouldn't have died in a famine. So that whole slavery experience is God's grace keeping this family alive. You know, it wasn't comfortable, wasn't happy, but they're alive. And then Moses, after he gets the law on Mount Sinai, after they come out of slavery, God, um, God says to Moses, you know, the people are, are sinning. They're worshiping false idols. I think I'll wipe them out and start over with you. He could have. He should have. It's not that Moses was perfect, but it would have been God's right to say, these people, I just took them out of slavery, now they're, they're worshiping false gods. He could have wiped them out, and Moses interceded and says, God, don't do that because it's going to look bad on you. Because you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember your unconditional promises that God keeps them alive. And, and then they, 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 they're in the wilderness, and they don't even believe the promises of God after all they've seen to go into the land to take the land. And everyone says, well, we're going to die in the wilderness. And God says, fine. Forty years later, their children grow up, and Moses is giving a set of sermons to the people about to go in and take the land that they don't deserve to have. And in Deuteronomy 9, he says, when you go in and you take the land that I promised to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, don't for a minute think that you're any more righteous than the Canaanites who you are going in to dispossess. You're not. You're not any better than them. What's the difference? Well, I made some unconditional promises to your great-grandfather. Add a few more greats in there. So I'm going to keep my promises by putting grace on you and justice on them then we get into the period of the judges and we find out as as steve said they're worse than sodom by the by the time you get to the end of judges they've only been in the land that they didn't deserve to have in the first place after having come out of slavery they're not even in the land for for many generations before they become worse than sodom which was destroyed by fire from heaven because of their immorality and god doesn't destroy them and and where we left off before lunch was if only we had a king if only we had a king things would be better that's where we're going to pick up the story right now but I, I say all of that it's a long introduction but because God has this this unfair reputation in the Old Testament for being full of justice and wrath and anger and might and fury and sulfur and all those negative things oh but then God cleans himself up in the New Testament doesn't he he gets a lot nicer a lot more loving in the New Testament but but the, the point is he's he's always been full of grace we should never have made it to Genesis 4 or Genesis 7 or the book of Exodus or Judges 20 and that's the point. We're coming into um, now the former prophets. We don't often call them that, but that's a collection of books. Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And in these books, these books were probably written through compiling different historical sources by a pastor theologian sitting on the other side of the greatest failure of the Old Testament. In 586 B.C., God called the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, pagan king, just a small emerging empire. He says, I want you to come in and destroy my people. I've, I've had enough. It's been 500 and some odd years that they've been in the land, but it's just been sin after sin after sin. So I want you to wipe them out. I want you to uh, kill most of their people, destroy their city, the holy city, Jerusalem. And that temple that I've been dwelling in, I'm going to leave, and you can tear it to the ground. And that's what happened. 
You see, in Deuteronomy 28, Moses warned them. He said, look, there are some unconditional promises that that God will see his plan through to the end. However, there's also conditional promises. So the way in which we get from A to B will depend a lot on you. We can get there the the easy way. You, You keep covenant with God. You do the things that he has called you to do. He's been very clear. This is how he wants you to behave. This is how he wants you to live. And if you do that, you'll be blessed. But if you break covenant with him, then we'll have to take the scenic route to your redemption. And it's going to be a lot more painful. It's going to take a lot more time. And it will end in death, destruction, and exile. The land that I gave you, says God, I will take away. That's exactly what happened. The people sinned, and God took it away. A lot of people died. And so at the very beginning, what we find out of this sermon, what we find out is the total failure of kingship to accomplish the goal that had been so hoped for at the end of the book of Judges. They had kings, but that whole experiment of kingship just ultimately led to death, destruction, and exile. In the middle of these books, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, is the reign of King Solomon. Now, most of us have probably heard of King Solomon. He was the wealthiest, the richest, and the wisest of the kings. He was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and Perez. Perez, I... I skipped over it pretty quick, but he's that son that was conceived by prostitution with Judah and his daughter-in-law. He becomes a link to David and then to Solomon. So like Abraham before him, Solomon's dad, David, received a list of unconditional promises. Like This is amazing. So we, we have a king on the throne and God gives him a list of unconditional promises. He says in 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to give you and your posterity peace. Peace meaning uh, total absence of war, but then a flourishing society. I'm going to make your name great, David, just like your father's name, Abraham, is great. I'm going to make for you a great house. And this has a lot of different implications. It's a physical temple. It's a, it's a palace. It's a family. But it's a dynasty. It's a, it's a political dynastic house. I'm going to give you a dynastic house, and this dynastic house will exist forever before me as the ultimate apex of my governance over the created world. And he says, on your throne, David, there will always be a king. And I will establish an eternal kingdom through you and your house. Now, Solomon inherits these unconditional promises from David, his father. And what I want us to look at now for the rest of our time is to see how Solomon's reign in Israel exhibits both the best and the worst of Israel's experience with kingship until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just pray about this, and then we're going to read the Word of God and look at the life of Solomon. God, as we take a look at Solomon, the the wealthiest, the wisest, and the most powerful of the kings, I pray that you would help us to see your grace at work and help us to understand how your grace at work in Solomon's life is still at work in our life today. We thank you for the son of Solomon, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the yes to all of your unconditional promises so that you can pass over sin in order to bring him into the world. Please bless these men as we open your scriptures together. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The reign of Solomon can be found in 1 Kings chapters 2 through 11. We're going to focus in on two chapters. First chapter we're going to look at is chapter 4. And we're not going to read all of the chapter, but we'll read uh, 15 or so verses near the end. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 40, or sorry, chapter 4, verse 20 through to the end of the chapter. This is a summary of 
Solomon's achievements and the quality of his reign. And it's the word of God. 1 Kings 4, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, a hundred sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tipsha to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan, that's high in the north, even to Bathsheba, which is down in the south. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 4,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking, barley also, and straw for the horses, and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Haman, and Kelkel, and Darda, and the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. And he also spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs, songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He also spoke of the beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. What a great text. Life is good. Really good. The kingdom was booming. This is the kind of statistics that if you are a politician in Canada or the United States or Europe today, you, you would read a list of accomplishments like this. You say, look, things are good. My administration is a success. You need to vote for me again. Give me four or five more years, depending what country you live in, and let me just keep doing what I'm doing because life couldn't be any sweeter. Mortality rates were on the decline. Remember, there was this great promise to Abraham who couldn't have a child, had no sons until he was 100 years old, or at least that's when Isaac was born, so say 85, 86 when Ishmael was born. And uh, God had promised him, your family will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Now we get to the reign of Solomon, and we're told that the number of people in Solomon's kingdom that, are, that is, all children of Abraham numbered the, the sand, uh, numbered the same as the grains of the sand on the seashore. This is a fulfillment of one of God's promises. This is very good. Population was up, as I said. The people were told very clearly they ate. They always had enough to eat. They drank. That's always very good. They were happy. They loved their life. They were pro-Solomon for the most part. We also find out that Solomon reigned over a mini empire from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines all the way to Egypt. The borders of Israel never get this big ever again. This is as big as it gets. This exceeds the land that God had promised to Abraham. So you see an over-achievement as far as receiving from the hand of God the blessing of, of land and territory and power. For the first time in Israel's history, they were at peace. There's no war. Solomonic peace. Because he was so dominant that nobody would take him on. Rather than fight him, they would send him tribute. 
If you're going to be in any situation, that's the situation to be in. Nobody wants to fight with you because you're so strong, and they just give you more things. In another part, they say that he was collecting apes and peacocks and all kinds of exotic animals. Any kind of treasure that the, the surrounding nations had, they would send it to Solomon, and he was getting rich and rich and rich, and all he had to do was not fight any of his neighbors, which is exactly what he wanted to do. We're told that every man had his own vine and his own fig tree. Everyone had private property. People weren't in debt. Solomon had a mighty army. In your Bible, it might say 40,000 stalls of horses. There's a textual discrepancy. I think if you look at another place in chapter uh, 10 or 11, it says 4,000. It makes more sense. But 4,000 stalls is a lot of stalls. We don't know how many horses per stall we do find out that he had chariots and 12,000 horsemen. So you'd think he had at least 12,000 horses. He collected handsome taxes, not just from abroad, but he divided up his mini empire into 12 different, uh, different regions. And he collected tribute from each region. And every region was responsible to send him tribute one month of the year. And we see the overabundance of what they sent him. Like, who could eat as much as he received? And so he could throw a party every day for anyone who was lucky enough to get invited into the royal house. And how do you think that helped people to feel about King Solomon? You know, he, sh he throws the best parties. The best meats. The wine is overflowing. And so he's popular. On top of all of that, God gave Solomon great wisdom so that there was no one as wise as he. So how should we evaluate this? Now, if you're just reading this, I mean, you don't have much to go on except to say, well, that's good. I think Solomon is a success. I, I give Solomon a passing grade. I think he's an A-plus kind of king. But if you step back and you read more broadly what God's vision for kingship was, you'll see that that may not be that easy Flip back to Deuteronomy 17. Before the people went into the promised land to take the land that God had promised them, God, through Moses, gave them the law a second time. That is, Moses gathered the wilderness generation together and says, look, you weren't old enough or you weren't even alive when I delivered the law to your fathers and your mothers. So before you go into the land, I think we need to do a refresher course. You need to hear again what, what, what God's expectations are. And he gave a series of sermons, Moses did, on God's expectations. This is what God requires of you if you're going to receive his blessing. And the, the book of Deuteronomy, as I said, ends in with blessings and curses. So you follow the, these rules and you, God will bless you. You don't follow them and God will curse you. Now, right in the middle of recapitulating these rules or, or retelling them uh, is a set of rules for kings. Now, you've got to believe that if Israel is going to receive blessing, if they're going to stay in the land, if they're going to keep covenant with God, their leaders better be walking with the Lord. And if they're not, then you can imagine that that's just going to trickle over. The trickle-down effect, you know, it's not just true in money, but, but whoever's at top, the churches become like their elders. Families become like their fathers. Nations become like their leaders. And so headship is heavy. If you're going to be the leader, if you're going to be the head of a family or an organization or a church or a nation, you better be very careful about your own conduct, which without digressing, just look at the state of politics in, in, in the West today. Love them or hate them. Pick your country, pick your party. If nations become like their leaders, well, we're not in a very good situation in the West. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, going back into the text, let's see what God's rules are for his leaders. Uh, in Deuteronomy 17, we're going to look at verses 14 through 20. This is God through Moses to the people. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, 
You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not many acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. In this passage, we see three groupings. We see qualifications. This is who the king must be. You see things that the king must uh, not do, and we see things that the king must do. There's only two qualifications. Number one, God must choose him. Doesn't speculate or or specify how God makes the choice, but there has to be some way that the, the country can have confidence that this is God's man. God has selected him for this task. The second qualification is he must be an Israelite. He must be a brother, not a foreigner. So you cannot then just go and get yourself a king from any surrounding nation. It has to be an Israelite. Three things that the king must not do. The king must not acquire many horses for himself. Why? Horses mean military power. God does not want to have a king over his people like all the other nations where the king's primary responsibility is to defend the people militarily. God says, I reserve that for myself. I will protect my people. All I require is that they trust me to protect them. So I do do not want you to have a big army because if you have a big army, people will forget that it's I who am responsible to protect you and all of a sudden you will begin to put your confidence in horses, in men, in the king. And whoever is the military power is a short step from that to being the one who the people worship. You worship the one who protects you. you. You worship the one with power. And so don't let the king build up for himself a standing army. Secondly, the king must not acquire many wives for himself. And God here is correcting the polygamous problem throughout the Old Testament. Look, I established one man, one woman in the beginning. That's been corrupted, but the leader of my people is going to hold to that ancient tradition. I created one man to be with one woman. So the king must be a one-woman man. We also know that Politically, wives are often foreign alliances. So I don't want you entering into foreign alliances with other nations. I want you to trust me. Your only alliance is with me. And foreign alliances means alliances with foreign gods. And foreign princesses bring with them foreign idols. Third thing that the king must not do, he must not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. If you're in a position of power to tax people, you will drain their resources in order to enrich yourself. God says, I'm not going to have any of that because that's not the kind of king that I am. I'm not the kind of king that requires you to give me all that you have so that I can be fat, lazy, and rich. I am the kind of king that pours myself out for you. I'm your servant. I'm your helper. I'm the one that gives you the inheritance. I give you the riches. The riches flow from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom to the top. And if the king is going to be my representative, that's the way it's got to be. Because if it goes the other way, then looking at the king on his throne, they will begin to make associations between the king and me, and they'll make false conclusions about who I am. Four things the king must do. 
The king must write a Levitically approved copy of the Torah for himself. You see the original check and balance, right? So not only does the king have to write out the Torah for himself, that was the Bible at the time, first five books of the Bible, but he had to take his copy to the Levitical priests and get their approval. Yes, that is accurate to the original. Otherwise, over time, the kings could change things to suit their own interests. Write it out by hand. That's just very good didactic, practical lesson, right? If you want to know something, write it out by hand. Maybe that's instructive for us. Uh, maybe we ought to be writing out Scripture in our own hand. Secondly, he must read his personally handwritten Torah every day. More important than any other business of the king is his time in the Word of God. Third, he must make every effort to keep Torah. He's not going to do it perfectly, but his, his life must be on a trajectory where he's making an effort to keep the Word. And fourth, he must not put himself above his brothers by putting himself above the Torah. Nobody is above the law. Not even the king. So in light of Deuteronomy 17, let's go back and revisit Solomon's success or lack thereof. Was he a good king? Was he a success? Well, let's put together his report card. Let's go through these. First, start with the two qualifications. Did God choose him? Pass. Okay, that's good. We're off to a good start. Just listen. I want to read to you for, uh, in 2 Samuel 12. Really quick backstory. David had, uh, raped Bathsheba, took her to be his wife, and killed her husband. The child of that adulterous liaison died as punishment for David's sin but then David conceived again with Bathsheba and the son's name was Solomon that's what David named him and Solomon in Hebrew is uh, Shalomo Shalom oh peace after having taken a son God gives David a son through Bathsheba and so David says okay God I'm taking this as a sign that we, we you've reestablished peace with me I'm finally at peace with you again. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Shalom. Shalom. We have peace again. That's what Solomon means. But then look at what David does. Just listen. 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 25. David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and David called his name Peace. And the Lord loved him. It's ambiguous. Who does the Lord love, David or Solomon? Both, I would argue, but it's, it's impossible to know who the him is here. And sent a message to, by Nathan the prophet. What was the message? So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Okay, so God, David names him peace, Solomon, and God says, no, 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 that doesn't go far enough. Nathan? I have a, an errand for you. Go to the king. Tell him that his son's name is not peace, but the beloved of the Lord. Or, very literally, the David of the Lord. Jedidiah is the David of the Lord. And David means beloved. We don't just have peace here, David. You and your son are my beloved. The objects of my love and grace. It's amazing. So, did God choose him? Yes, that's clear by 2 Samuel 12, 24-25. Was he an Israelite? Pass. Okay, so, so far he's got 100%. He's an Israelite. He's even from Judah, which uh, if you know anything about Genesis 49, the king is going to come from Judah. So that's great. He's got great credentials to be a king in Israel. Okay, now the things that the king must not do. Did he acquire many horses for himself? Fail. We've already heard that he had 4,000 stalls. He had chariots. He had 12,000 horsemen. And this wasn't for like the Olympics, right? Horse jumping and horse showing. This is for war. Um, it gets reiterated in chapter 10. 
So if you want to go to chapter 10, we're going to spend some time in chapter 10 as well. Let me just read for you verse 26 and verses 28 and 29. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Skip a verse, 28. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q, and the king's traders received them from Q at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt at 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they are exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. So not only did... Um, Solomon arm himself and not it, this wasn't as if he just had a prolific reproduction of horses he traded for them he intentionally built up his army and then he exported arms to his allies this is a, breaking the rules as much as you could break them importing horses and exporting horses to his allies so that he had the strong position in the region fail Second thing that the king must do, he must not acquire many wives. Did he acquire many wives? Fail, like spectacular fail, huge fail. If you know anything about Solomon, you know that he had a couple of women. Uh, look at chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after the gods, their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. What do we make of that? Clung to these in love. Did he have warm feelings toward them? Maybe, but more importantly, he treasured what they gave him. Not just sexual outlets, but also political power. He had 700 wives. That means he was in 700 alliances that were firm alliances and 300 concubines. To this day, I don't really have a great answer for what's the difference between a wife and a concubine. Concubines, uh, my understanding is they're thrown in. So they, they don't have any uh, political value, but they're just sort of like an extra gift. So, a plaything, totally objectifying their, their womanhood. And his wives turned away his heart. The king must not acquire excessive silver and gold. Did he ex acquire excessive silver and gold? Just go back to chapter 10, verse 21 to 25. I mean, and I'm just pulling a little bit here. I could read you the whole chapter. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver, because silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silvery, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules. So much year by year. You know what's awful about this? Not only it, does he have all these excessive riches from his internal taxes, his foreign alliances, but he uses the very gift that God gave him, wisdom, to make more money. If you go back to um, when he asked for wisdom, he says, I'm too, too young and too small to know how to govern. Give me wisdom so I'll know how to govern this, your great people. By the time we get to chapter 10, he's using the gift not to govern wisely according to the Torah, but to build up his empire, his wealth. Fail. Now, how about the things the king must do? Did he write a Levitically approved copy of the Torah for himself? If he did, it's not mentioned. And I know you can't make an argument from silence, but it's a glaring 
absence. It's very glaring that it doesn't say that he did it. Did he read his personally handwritten Torah every day? Again, we don't know because we don't even know if he had it. But you might guess that he didn't or else he would have read Deuteronomy 17 at least once a year and he would have been able to say, well, I'm not really living this out. In all of the discussion about Solomon's wisdom, there's no reference to the Torah. None at all. In fact, when we get into that part in chapter 4 where we're told about how wise he was and all of his proverbs and songs and how everybody thought that he was the bee's knees, he's greater than Ethan the Ezraite. He's, he's writing all these proverb songs. He's writing about botany. He's writing about zoology. He's a smart man. But there's no mention of the Torah. You would, you would think, and again, it's an argument from silence, but it's a glaring absence that in this paragraph talking about how wise he was in the areas of, of zoology, biology, or botany, and biology, and uh, proverbs, and songs, and all of these other things, you would think they would say, and he had a wicked grasp of the Bible. He loved the Word of God. He clung to the Word of God like his father David had done. And I'm not saying David was a picture of perfection. Fail. Did he keep the Torah? Fail. He didn't even keep Deuteronomy 17. Like the one part of the Torah that is specifically addressed to him, Deuteronomy 17, which we read, applied to him and no one else. That was written by God just for him at that time while he was alive. And he didn't even keep the one part of the Bible that was addressed directly to him. It's not like us where we have to extrapolate, right? Say, well, that's about kings. I'm not a king. So then I have to go up the ladder of abstraction and figure out what I can draw from it. No, it's just very clear. If you're a king, this is what I expect from you. He didn't even keep that. Did he put himself above his brothers by putting himself above the Torah? fail in 1st Kings 4 6 we're told that he enslaved his own people so what we find out is the son of David who David named peace and God renamed the David of the Lord or the beloved of the Lord by the time you get to 1st Kings 4 is acting just like Pharaoh Israel is in the promised land with their own king and they're back in slavery just as they had been in Exodus. But who's going to deliver God's people from God's king? That's a problem. Massive problem. So what's Solomon's report card? Well, we gave him two passes, five fails, and two unknowns. Where he passed, he had absolutely no control. God chose him, and he was an Israelite from the tribe of Judah. He had no control. Everything that he had control over, he failed. So if we give him the the marks for for passing those two things outside of his control, he still only grades at 22%. The greatest king Israel has ever known. 22%. Now that is a spectacular fail. So what happens? Well, if you keep reading, God rips the northern kingdom out of the control of the house of David. God says, I'm going to take all the tribes away except for the tribe of Judah and Simeon, which was assimilated by that time. But notice what God did not do. So he split the kingdom... But what God did not do, he did not take Judah away from Solomon or Solomon's sons. He did not rescind his promise that he had given to David. He did not remove Solomon's wisdom. He did not remove Solomon's wealth. He did not remove Solomon's power. Indeed, Solomon even remains an essential link in the genealogical chain that stretches from Adam to Jesus Christ. Without Solomon, we don't get Jesus coming into the world. And so God just lavishes His grace upon him, saying, my grace will need to see you through one more generation, then the next generation, more grace to get you to the next generation. And every generation from Adam all the way to Jesus required so much grace because God could have and should have just wiped them out. 
22%, that's, that is a wiping out worthy scorecard for a king of Israel. So what about us? Let's talk about this ladder of abstraction just to close our time. We're not kings. We don't even have the opportunity to sin the way Solomon sinned. And that's God's mercy to us. We can't acquire many horses, right? We can't acquire many armies. But there are many ways that we can seek to protect ourselves and promote ourselves that cut God entirely out of the picture. Building many empires for ourselves in our life, thinking that it's what we acquire that keeps us secure. It could be power and prestige in a career. What ladder are you climbing? Because when you get to the top of it, you might just find out that you score at about 22%. Political participation that seeks to win and to wield secular power. One of the greatest mistakes, I think, in North America today is that Christians want to control the levers of power in government. That has never worked out well for us. Why are we so concerned about controlling things in our secular society? Why not preoccupy ourselves with being ambassadors for the King of Kings who rules from heaven? What about an overdependence on retirement savings? I'm not saying it's sin to save for retirement, but is that where our security lies? Many horses. We can't acquire many wives, can we? Well, we're coming to an age where maybe we will be able to, legally. But even now, we may not have an actual harem of 700 wives and 300 concubines, but do we not have imaginary harems of our own? built on fantasy, the internet, and our own selfish desires? How big's your harem? Lusty flirtations, adulterous affairs. We can't acquire excessive silver and gold, right? Not like Solomon. I don't know, any of you have a gold goblet at home? Because silver is so common. Well, we may not have gold goblets per se, but a life devoted to material gain. How many of us, the number one ambition that we have is more money? Bigger houses, better cars, sharper clothes, grander vacations, greater creature comforts. And let me just say, none of us is immune from the material culture in which we live. We live in a, in a culture today where the poorest among us enjoy the luxuries that kings and queens of yesteryear could only dream of. I, I eat strawberries at the dead of winter. I wear a, a t-shirt in my house in the dead of winter. I don't own it, but my parents have a cottage that I can go to in the summer. I got my own summer house? even if the mortgage is not in my name, we're living large. Do we have to write out the Scriptures by hand? Do we have to read the, our handwritten Bibles every day? Do we have to memorize Scripture? Do we actually need to live by the Word of God? See, this started off pointing our finger at Solomon. It comes back on us pretty quick. Truth is, Solomon was a man's man. He lived a life that most men only fantasize about living, though few of us would ever admit it. Each of us in our own ways and to various degrees is trying to build a little empire for ourselves just like Solomon. But these empires are hollow, they're empty, they're a house of cards. They undercut God's best for us. They, they're built on a foundation of sin. Now, I told you that this wasn't about be better, be stronger, and it's not, because this is where we're going to land. Solomon was a spectacular failure, and we can relate to him as, as much as it seems at first that we can't. We can. But look at the grace at work in his life. Look at how God used him. God built the temple through his administration. God glorified himself among the nations. As much as Solomon wanted to get rich, 
and used his wisdom to get rich. Even the queen of Sheba praised the God of Solomon for the wisdom that Solomon's God had given him. So even in his perverted desires, God glorified himself. He established the wisdom tradition in Israel and in the scriptures through a man like Solomon. He is the the great patriarch and benefactor of the wisdom tradition. He carried the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants to the next generation. And perhaps most of all, Solomon, more than any other king, serves as a shadow of the greatness of Jesus Christ when Jesus returns to reign in his kingdom. Jesus will be like Solomon, except there will be no sin in him. But he will be grand, he'll be powerful, and he will be wealthy. The big difference is, whereas Solomon's wealth was bottom up, the Lord Jesus receives all of his wealth and all of his power from God the Father, and he distributes it to us. The Solomonic Empire is a picture of Christ reigning forever and ever. God did all of that through a man who scored 22% on his test of kingship. Likewise, even while I'm not endorsing sin, I'm not saying go out and sin more that God can use you more, there's serious consequences for sin. Nevertheless, we can be assured that just as God used Solomon, he will use us. Even North American men caught up in all the sin and silly nonsense that we are, God will use us and he will glorify himself because we cannot stop God from working. Not even by being spectacular failures. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your grace. You have so lavished us with grace upon grace that we can't even see the depth of our need for your grace. And when we do, we quickly fall into this awful legalism, pointing the finger at one another for who's more righteous and who's more sinful or we sink into a a shell of despair when we see ourselves for who we are. I thank you that none of that is the right response, but rather we, we go forward trusting that you can and you will use us, even us, to bring about the end of your story of redemption. I pray for these men. Help them in their weakness. Forgive them for their sin. And glorify your name in and through their lives. I pray this in the name of the Son of Solomon, Jesus Christ. Amen. Ten minute break because I went over my time allotment. And uh, then we're back. We're going to worship a little and then Steve's going to close our day. Before I uh, give up the microphone, I wanted to thank Luke and uh, your band. Thank you all for coming. It's been wonderful. Thank you for your ministry. And it's always a pleasure to serve alongside Steve. As Steve said, we've got a rich history together. Uh, he is a real blessing to me. I always learn from, from him. I'd never thought about, for example, uh, Israel being worse than Sodom. That changes everything. Powerful, powerful. So, Steve, thank you for your ministry. Always blessed by it and for your friendship. Uh, Take a break, and then we'll be back for one more session. God bless you.